0: or wherever you
1: listen. I got looked somewhat begrudgingly to go to a matinee ballet that was over in Fort Worth nearby. Before the show started, we noticed that there was a white couple, older white couple, like, I don't know, maybe 60s, even 70s. And I know when I'm being looked at and kind of stared at and eyeballed, and I realized I was the only Black person in that audience. So we watched the show, The show's over, we're getting up to leave. That couple comes down from the balcony and he's whispering to his wife something as they're looking at us. And my very protective husband, he is, he's, I can feel him as he's holding my hand. He's ready to fight. And I'm sort of like holding him back. I'm, you know, whispering to him. I'm like, you know, this. these are things that we deal with. I mean, I know this is the 21st century, but not everybody has evolved to the 21st century.
2: Welcome to How To. I'm journalist and documentary producer Elen B. And Duty Hofer, sitting in for Amanda Ripley. Let me introduce you to the woman from the ballet. Her name is Dana, and she's the founder and executive director of Afro LA, a nonprofit newsroom that covers Los Angeles through the lens of the black community. I'm actually on the board at Afro LA because I really believe in their mission. But we're not here to talk about Dana's work, we're here to discuss her marriage. Dana met her husband, Luke, about six years ago when their paths crossed at a different newsroom, the Dallas Morning News. He
1: came down to ask someone in my department a question, and he wound up striking up a conversation with me. We were talking and it felt like time had just kind of stopped for a few minutes. And I realized, you know, instead of two minutes, we had talked for 10 and I felt like people were kind of starting to watch us. Um, So I ended the conversation, um, but I sent him a message later to ask for his help and his input on something that I really did not need his help or input on.
2: All right. Now, Dana, that was a smooth move. Now, the two of them continued chatting. And then Dana slyly mentioned that she had recently celebrated her birthday.
1: And he said, oh, you know, I should I should buy you a birthday drink. And I'm like, oh, okay. well, what are you doing tonight? He worked the night shift and I'm like, well, what are you doing tonight? And he's like, well, I don't I don't get off until midnight. And I'm like, "Okay, so what are you doing at like
2: 1245? So that night at 1245, Luke met Dana for drinks at a little dive bar.
1: We had a couple of beers and some cheese fries and and talked and closed the place down until closing time. That was November 30th. We were engaged um, in
2: July. Now, you might think they'd want to celebrate with their colleagues, but Dana and Luke didn't want to be the news of the newsroom. There were a lot of newsroom couples um, in a newsroom
1: already, but we kept our relationship a secret. People didn't even know we knew each other until we announced that we were engaged. I wanted people to stay out of my business. But the other part was I didn't want any judgment passed upon me by anybody because of my decisions.
2: One of those decisions being to date outside of her own race. Luke is white and was raised in a rural corner of Kansas, whereas Dana grew up in central Florida.
1: And the town itself was very, I felt divided. I mean, there was Mm. literally a bridge that you went over that was near downtown that separated Mm. the black side of town from really what the white side of town was. And that separation was felt in her school too. The first person that I went out on a real date with was a fellow Black student um, that was in honors classes with me. Everybody kept trying to peg us together because we were the two Black kids in all the honors classes. Mm. It's like, you guys would make a great couple. And he actually asked me out to homecoming. He was a terrible date. He showed up an hour late, but he brought me flowers. And I'm like, okay, (sighs) this is never going to work. And I don't think he really liked me anyway.
2: By the time Dana attended Wesleyan College, which has a diverse international student body, race wasn't really a thing for when it came to dating. And when she met Luke, something just clicked. But again, they were in no hurry to talk about it, including with Luke's parents.
1: They knew that he was dating someone and that it was getting serious, but I asked him um, not to tell them that I was Black because I wanted to see their genuine reaction to me. I wanted to know that if we were going to get married, that they
2: truly did accept me. On today's episode, we're going to navigate the nuances of being in an interracial relationship struggles, but also the joys. And we invited the perfect person to join us. Karen. Yes. I'd like to bring you in here because you wrote a book called Don't Bring Home a White Boy. So Dana, Mm. what were you thinking, girl? What were you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a (laughs) joke there. That's Karen Langhorn Fullen. She's an author many times over, including the book Don't Bring Home a White Boy and other notions that keep black women from dating out. Not only has Karen formerly studied interracial relationships, but like Dana, she's in one herself. She has tons of wisdom for strengthening your partnership and shedding society's expectations. And no matter what kind of a relationship you're in, this is a conversation we all need to hear. So stay with us.
0: In each episode, Kitty talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com/podcast or find it wherever
3: you listen. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure.
2: When Karen met her second husband, Kevin, in 2004, it was where so many love stories start nowadays, online. He wrote me the most
4: beautiful introductory email, just very kind and funny. And we would chat every day for a good month, six weeks at 4 p.m. And we never met in person until finally he said, may I take you out? And I said, yes. So uh, at the time, you know, I, I had been married before and I had a daughter from that marriage who was then about six years old. I arranged for babysitting and Kevin came to the door and I opened it and I'll never forget it. I opened the door on this older white guy and I thought, I can't do this. I, <laughs> there was just, it was just sort of like, I, I mean, it, I don't know if I can do this. Now, did you know in advance? Of course. I had seen his profile. It was just that moment. And then I remembered, I've been talking to this man for a month and a half. I know him. It may or may not be a love match, but he's definitely someone that I'm going to have a good time with. He's a friend. And the minute I kind of like said, what am I thinking here?
2: It it all went away. Karen, you're not alone. I did that with my husband. I was set up on a blind date like any good journalist. I went to LinkedIn. I looked him up and I said, oh, he's white. And my friend and journalist who was sitting next to me said, is there a problem with that? But I had the exact same reaction.
4: But it is interesting that we all have that sort of cultural indoctrination where it's like, wait a minute. Am I allowed to do this? Is this the right thing? Am Mm. I a traitor to the race? Mm -hmm. Am I, you know, am I doing something that is jeopardizing the culture that I love? I mean, it doesn't make me any less African-American, any less of a black woman. I'm very proud of that identity. And yet, when you agree to share your life with someone who is not of the culture, there's definitely a new component with someone who has not had those experiences.
1: That's definitely a thing for me, Karen. I am Black, but I'm also half Ghanaian. Um, But I've at times struggled with how do I keep alive that um, I'm very proud of being Black and I'm very proud of being Ghanaian Um, married to Luke. And I feel like, and and how do I pass that on to my children to be proud of that, whether they're biological and if they're adopted, help them celebrate whatever heritage they are too, and no matter what, to be proud that they are Black.
2: Where there's pride in your identity, there can also be a feeling of wanting to protect it, especially when part of your heritage is wrapped up in our nation's history of systemic racism.
4: I'm a bit older than Dana. My mother grew up in Jim Crow segregation in the South she was kind of coming initially from the point of view of a great distrust of white people because of some of her experiences and so at first i think she was a little bit uncomfortable it took a while for her to get to know kevin you know we all are carrying with us the ghosts of our past experiences and it's reasonable to expect it to take some time for those things to to for the individuals involved to realize that, you know, whatever your generalizations about people, this is a person, and as you get to know this person, those things begin to fall away, those generalizations begin to fall away.
2: It's interesting to me as I'm listening to you both, you know, this year, 2022, is the 50th anniversary of Loving versus Virginia, when the Supreme Court struck down laws banning interracial marriages in all 50 states, and according to a Gallup poll, from 2021, 94% of Americans approve of interracial marriage, compared to 87% in 2013. And wait for it, 4% when this was first explored in 1958. And we hear that and one might think, so why are we having this conversation? What's the problem? And Yes, we have come a long way. And at the same time, we can't bury the fact that there are those challenges that continue to exist today for interracial relationships. In preparing for our conversation today, I reflected on a get-together, and I had this with several girlfriends a few months ago. All of us are women of color in interracial relationships, and we're sitting in my room, in my living room, drinking mimosas, eating quiche, and we're talking about our individual struggles with a partner of another race, and we cried. And we asked each other for insights and advice. Uh, we also laughed and we expressed deep gratitude for our partners. And it's important to point out that we are not a monolithic group, right? And at the same time, this tension that we experienced was shared tension uh, because of race and because of the complexities and barriers that come along with interracial partnerships. I think. One of the
4: big things is the more comfortable we get and the more opportunities we have as people to break out of our our insular backgrounds, the, that to me is the, the secret of kind of healing some of our racial comfort is we all need to become a heck
1: of a lot more comfortable with each other. We need more shared experiences. All of these things are resonating with me. One thing that he and I have talked about at length is the fact that he is a, he's raised as a Midwesterner. I am a Southerner. You know, I know some people say Florida is not the South, but Central Florida is, Central Florida, North Florida is the South. It is the mom South. mom would
2: agree with you. My yeah, mom it's, would agree. Yes. Yeah,
1: it's, it's not South Florida. It's uh, it's the South. Um, So this like Southern idea, very familial, very community-like, and also, and I mean, I, I don't know. If it's more black or more southern. I mean it's like the family reunions and we have dinner together on Sundays and everybody shows up. And when he came for the first time for Christmas, he just needed to like take ten in the corner because there were thirty-five people in my mom's dining room. And he's and the right. and the door and the doorbell kept ringing. He's like, There's more people. I'm like, We you only invited like ten. And I'm like, No, but everybody comes. Everybody gets a plate. Everybody gets a seat. You find some place to see mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. that was a very it, very culture shock um, for him. Conversely, when I went to uh, visit where he grew up in Kansas, it's a town of you know two thousand people. I mean, I I identified with you know the small town life, but it's also it's very distant. It's very everybody kind of has their own pod, their own little family pod, and you stay within that. And even within those kind of family units, there's just a little more distance. Like so, for example. Luke talks to his his parents, his mom, you know, maybe like every couple of weeks, like once a month. My mom and I, we talk almost every day. I'm in a text thread with my mom, my sisters. So I think that very much influenced how our families reacted to each other. Like they saw me as like, okay, we, we accept you and we treat you like another person in the family, but it's still a little distant, which I wasn't used to. And when he was brought in and it's like, oh, hey, son, uh, he's like, whoa, okay, that, that's different, that's different. Like, all right, um, in instant family.
2: As Luke and Dana were getting to know each other's families, they were also getting acclimated to each other's culture and traditions. And that takes time and patience. So one thing that Dana found could help do that was to get into the kitchen. I mean, food is a
1: big thing for us. So recently we were watching like a BuzzFeed video on um, um, people try each other's dishes and they had one on, I think it was a Nigerian woman, a Ghanaian woman and a Liberian woman. They were all trying each other's jollof rice. And the Ghanaian woman, I believe, won, if I remember correctly. And I was joking about um, my dad having made this rice when I was a little girl. And I hadn't—I didn't really know his recipe, I just watched him make it. And I'm like, next time I go home, I should get him to teach me. So my husband, he goes to the African market in our neighborhood, gets all the like special little ingredients that you're not going to find um, at our regular mm. grocery store. And he goes in the kitchen for the afternoon and kicks me out. And I'm like, I don't know what you're doing, but all right, cool. <laughs> so he makes jollof rice from scratch, like makes it on a little ramekin and does this like shape for it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, um, and that is "Mm, a keeper that is a keeper right there amen (laughs) Amen. that's right it was just he knew that it was something that meant something to me you know i see you i love you and i i want to embrace all of you so food is as how we do that so
4: and you know something though dana that those are the things that when you model that for your your children will do as much as any lecture or any conversation you can ever have with them to show the appreciation that you all have for each other's different cultures. Mm -hmm. But it's as simple as making a dish because Mm -hmm. I love you, and this is who your mom is, I love her, and this is a part of our family, and we're all going to enjoy this dish that I made to celebrate us. That is, to me... In a nutshell, Mm -hmm. one of the most powerful and important things that you can do as a family to make your children have a clear understanding of their roots on both sides. Now, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of other stuff. I know Mm -hmm. in our own family, because Kevin and I have a child together uh, who is mixed race, We've, we've had different conversations with her than the ones that we had with my daughter from my prior marriage, just because she really is the embodiment of two cultures. But I do think that when it comes to children, we still have to keep in mind, this country still will perceive our children according to how they appear. Mm-hmm. So if your children are more brown, they they need to understand that's how the world sees them.
2: Mm-hmm. Now that's something that is mostly out of our control. But what we can do is something my parents did with me. Communicate, and communicate often about how the world perceives you. But most importantly, how you see yourself. Developing a kind of situational awareness is valuable. And hopefully folks like that couple at the ballet do continue to evolve. But what if they don't? And what if they're part of your new extended family? Well. We'll tackle that question right after the break.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
2: We're back with Dana and Karen Langhorn Fullen. So far, we've talked about blending identities, preserving culture and passing down pride. But now we need to get to the really hard stuff because as much as you can control what happens within your relationship, it's much trickier when strangers or even new family members question your experience.
1: I have had to make some really big compromises. So one thing that has been very difficult for me is that Luke's parents are very fervent um, Trump supporters. Um, We are, um, the two of us, my family, pretty much everybody I know are very much not. I'm a kind of agree to disagree kind of person, but this was one that was really tough for me. I learned to just sort of um, not say anything but I took the opportunity when they came to visit for uh, Thanksgiving. Um, I actually invited them for Thanksgiving last year and they were going to stay for a few days and we could just hang out, get to know each other a little more. But one of the big things for me was the opportunity to, you know, pull them aside, especially um, his mom, who's a little more vocal and say that, you know, it's not, I don't, I have no problem, you know, that, you know, you're more conservative, I'm more liberal, centrist, that sort of thing. But the fact that you support someone who has done and said things that have resulted in danger and and harm to people like me and my community and people that work in my field um, is hurtful. And I, just wanted to, you know, kind of express how I felt. And it didn't go quite as I had planned, but I came to the realization that his parents don't accept me. I mean, they've never been outright racist to me or um, mean to me. I think it's just that they don't understand me as a Black person, as a Black woman. It's never going to be the same as if I was white. Like, it's just never going to be the same. First of all, I
4: commend you for for attempting the conversation. I mean, I was listening to your story, and I, I knew how that was going to end, unfortunately. I think what you can hope for is that over time, I mean, you guys have been together for five, six years. One day, perhaps, something might happen. Maybe it might be when there is a grandchild involved, mm-hmm. and they may be suddenly willing to see this a little bit differently.
2: So this actually happened with my own parents. When they got married, my mom's father refused to go to the wedding. It wasn't until my older brother was born, a few years later, when something changed. Next thing I know, my grandparents are in the Congo visiting my dad's family. So it is possible but this isn't everybody's experience, and you can't always force it.
4: I would not try to persuade. I would just, I would just help tell my stories.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: It's better to try to influence your husband to, to speak with them. And, and even he probably won't be able to persuade them to see things your way. How can he? He's still learning from you, too. So time may heal this, and it may never do. But I, I do think it's important that you continue to tell your stories the way you want to tell them, but just to keep your expectations low. They're coming from a very, very different place.
1: Right, right. I, I'm glad that what you're saying is kind of along the same lines of where I'm I'm thinking already and kind of like that's kind of my attitude that my husband, he's ready to defend me if, if needed, but it, it doesn't seem like it will get that antagonistic. And I've told him, I'm like, I never want you to choose between me and your parents. I never want to put you in that position. But I know that if he needed to defend me against what was anything that was said that was shouldn't have been said, I know that he would stand up for me. And that's not a problem.
4: Exactly. You want to leave that for things that are egregious. And I think you're very, very wise to say, you know, I don't want to put anyone in that position. (laughs) I hate this. I hate this because I feel like as black women, we're always pushing something down, swallowing something back, accepting something that we shouldn't have to accept for the peace of all involved. But for our marriages, and you're talking about raising children in this sphere. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to connect to your husband's family for the good of those young people and, and for the hope that they can also help open your in-laws' eyes a little bit further. You know, when they see those little beautiful brown babies coming up to them and realize that the world is seeing them in a way that's very different from the way that they do, it's something to hope for.
2: So Karen, you're saying to not give up hope and at the same time set reasonable and realistic expectations for Dana and having these conversations, don't persuade, but tell your story and when needed, leave space for Luke to interject when he needs to.
4: I I think that's right. And and certainly if if something egregious happens you have my permission to go to go ham on it, but your your <laughs> husband should your husband should go with you on that. Okay. Anything that he allows his family to get away with when it comes to dealing with you also reflects on him. So that's where you really have to pay attention is, you know, if he's saying, oh, that's no big deal, but it's a big deal to you, and he's not reacting, that's really where the issue is. It isn't with them. It's between you and he. Mm-hmm. That's where the issue is. Gotcha.
2: Dana, I want to ask you about a letter that Luke wrote you for his birthday. Would you yes. mind sharing a bit about how that came about?
1: Yes, I was writing and journaling thoughts uh, after George Floyd um, was murdered. Um, I was having a really, really hard time with things, and I I actually called out of out of out of work because I'm like I just mentally I'm like I'm all over the place. I'm like I'm having flashbacks to things my grandparents told me about people being lynched. I'm like this is this is bad, and. Um, Luckily, the, one of the people that I work with very kind, very caring. She's like, why don't you write some of this down? You're a writer. So I did. And I wound up writing um, an essay that we did publish um, about how I felt so conflicted about all, so many things, being a journalist, being from a law enforcement family and, you know, um, what had happened to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and just so much. And it happened to be that I was writing all this and it was my husband's birthday. His birthday is um, June 2nd. And he wrote me a letter as I was writing on my laptop in my office. And he he brought me a journal and let me read it. And one of the things that he said in it is he's like, I get it now. I get it. And I understand why you hurt like this right now. And it was something that he gave me um, as a present on his birthday. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of backwards. But he told me that if you want to use this as part of the essay that you wrote, you can, and, but if you want to keep it just between us, you can. But I was really moved by the fact that he's like, if you think somebody else can learn from this, then use it.
2: Dana, I have it here. If you don't mind, will you read that last portion of the letter? Yes.
1: Like any worthwhile husband, I want to care for you and make you feel secure. It's my job and probably my love language. As we get closer to having kids, I heard you recently say, I don't know if I have what it takes to keep a black boy alive in this world. That flash of your dread will forever stick with me.
2: I read that and hearing you read it right now and just thinking about how much anxiety (laughs) that draws up in me and, and pain that draws up in me and, and thinking about, you know, how does the state that we're in right now in this country, um, complicate things for those of us that are in interracial relationships?
1: Oh goodness. It feels like being torn in 50 different directions. Like your body is just being pulled and, and, and grasp in, in every direction and you're not sure how to pull yourself back together and, and to be whole. Um, I think actually what I said in the, in the very last couple of sentences in that essay sum it up and I can read it for you if you'd like. Sure. It says, I don't dread the future. I hope for something better. I pray every day that when my children come into this world, I can help them navigate it. I can teach them to survive it. I pray that we are all in a better place by then and that this moment means something more than days of protests that fade away until the next tragedy.
4: I hope so too. And I, I mean, our family just like everyone in the country during that time was certainly impacted. My eldest daughter took to the streets with a, group of her friends. And um, I was incredibly proud of her. I was also very scared for her, because, you know, things were happening in the streets of DC that were extremely frightening. Um, My youngest daughter wanted to go, I would have let her go, I would have gone with her, I would have gone with her and with my older daughter. My husband felt it was incredibly dangerous for any of us to do that. The National Guard was on the street mm-hmm. firing tear gas at mm-hmm. protesters. This was really not yeah. not yeah. exactly a family-friendly situation. Yeah. I, I think he was probably right. But at the time, I felt, like many African-American people in this country, like enough is enough is enough is enough. And I if, if it takes one more body on the street to finally tip this over, let me go now. That's how I felt about it. We had some arguments. We had some arguments over over this. I, 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 I was angry enough to feel that he didn't understand. He assures me he does, but I'm not sure he does. There's a place where he can't understand. He has not walked these boots. And I think as interracial couples, we have something to teach the wider culture. I mean, we have daily conversations about things that he can do that because he's a white man that i can't because i'm a black woman so these are these are things that we confront every single day and somehow manage to continue to continue to love each other to continue to work together to continue to find common ground it's hokey but In a way, that's kind of what our broader culture ultimately needs to be able to do, is to find that common thread again.
2: Here's the deal. Relationships are complicated. In in interracial relationships, even more so, because no two are the same. It is not realistic to assume we know each other's experiences. If we're willing to discuss race and racism, and tradition and culture, that can make interracial partnerships stronger. So is recognizing that there's a connection that can be forged from our differences. As my own parents once told me, what we've got is something special. Doesn't make it easy, doesn't mean everyone will accept it, but what do we care? It's ours and it's sacred. Thanks to Dana and Karen for sharing their sacred stories. Make sure to check out Karen's book, Don't Bring Home a White Boy, and Dana's amazing news organization, AfroLA. We'll share a link in the show notes. Do you have any interracial relationship advice to share? We wanna hear it. Send us a note at, howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. That's also where you can drop us a note with any other questions or problems you'd like us to tackle. Now, if you found this episode useful, please give us a rating and a review. Also, tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Bellson produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Helene Duty Hofer. Thanks for joining us.